Welcome to the STEMness Podcast, a podcast produced at the Cohen College of Engineering at the University of Houston, aimed at celebrating trailblazing women in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. You will hear industry leaders, engineering researchers, and female faculty members at the Cullen College talk about their journeys in STEM and how their work impacts the next generation of female STEMinists. I'm Michelle Patrick Kruger. I'm a PhD student in electrical engineering, and I'm one of your hosts for the STEMinist podcast. Thank you for tuning into this episode, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, this is Michelle Patrick Kruger, and I am here with Anita Gale. She is an aerospace engineer who graduated from University of Washington in Seattle. And what year was that? The bachelor's in 1973 and the master's in 1974, aeronautics and astronautics. All right. And so there's a lot for us to unwind here because Anita has done a ton of stuff. She has been one of the groundbreakers for women in engineering and women in space. And we all very much appreciate all of the work that you've done and put up with. And we know how that goes. Um, But yes, let me go ahead and let Anita start because I believe there's some things she would wish she wishes to say. Right from the outset. So those years, which mean I got into college in 1969, that was a time when women didn't go into engineering. Right. So it, it took a leap of faith to think that it, it was even something possible. In fact, I, when I figured out I wanted to be an engineer, which was in the ninth grade, it's the first time I saw the words aeronautical and engineer stuck together. Um, and I was keeping track of the Mercury program, Gemini, of course, Apollo was later, but I wanted to be involved with that going into space stuff, which started in 1961 without, well, actually with with, um, the the Soviets, but Alan Shepard was the first American in space, not counting the X-15 and Chuck Yeager and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I I knew that women didn't do that. Women were not welcome in engineering. So I knew if I was going to become an engineer, I needed to get the best grades I possibly could in high school. Needed to to study, math, science. I happened to be at rather an enlightened high school that uh, had something called engineering concepts. So I took that. There weren't many girls in my, my, my non-humanities classes, even in high school. There are few, but not many. And uh, graduated, um, let's see, in the top 3% of my class in high school, I think. So, and it, it turned out it was a, a good time to be graduating from high school to go into engineering. Um, because uh, I'd, I'd say for the, the women about three years in front of me, um, graduating, say, in the late, um, no, the even earlier 70s, like up through about 1971 or 72, they, they were really the trailblazers. They, they were going where no female had ever gone before. The people like me who graduated between about 1972 and 1976, 77, 78, were kind of like the sodbusters, the people going out onto the plains and, and settling down. Um, by the time we got into college, the, the professors in engineering school were starting to realize that when women came to engineering school, they really wanted to be there. Whereas a lot of the guys were simply there because dad was an engineer or mom thought it'd be cool. But the women, we really wanted to be there. Um, now, that didn't mean it was easy because <laughs> I was still the, um, the only woman in most of my classes. Uh, engineering enrollment of women passed 1%, 1% when I was in college. 
uh, which means when I got into industry, the engineering participation of women in the aerospace industry engineering was like 0.00% nothing. So I ended up being first woman, only woman, most vintage woman of almost everything I did in my career. And, and to this day, there's still sometimes I'm retired now, but I, I'm the first female CEO of the National Space Society, for instance. Um, hadn't been one before. <laughs> and the National Space Society has been around. Actually, its roots are in the 1970s. So um, even now, things are changing. But it was, uh, it, it was different for us in, uh, in the industry after I graduated from college. <laughs> so that, that's kind of a preface to everything else that happened in my career. <laughs> No, but that's really important. It's it's very important for women today to know where we came from and know what it was like. I know personally, I gra I started in the 80s and I um, I graduated in the 90s with my bachelor's. My master's was in the late 90s. So I know it was a lot of ground sod busting had already been done, but it was still, there were not not a few times. I was the only woman in the class. I was the only person on the, the only woman on the job. But you know, some of the stories you've told, like uh, no, no female bathrooms in the engineering building. I think those are kind of interesting to know as well. Yeah, you've, you've heard some of those. Uh, actually, uh, on the University of Washington campus, it was a nuclear reactor building that had no, actually, it did have a women's bathroom. But the uh, architect was originally instructed by the then dean of engineering to not put one in that building because there wouldn't be any women, which the, the architect disobeyed the rules and put a, a uh, women's bathroom in there. Uh, my graduate student office in my the year I got my master's uh, was on the fourth floor of Guggenheim Hall, University of Washington campus. There was no women's bathroom on that floor. So I had to, and there's no elevator in the building. <laughs> so I, I, I couldn't have an emergency situation because I had to go down to the third floor to find a women's bathroom. <laughs> That's inconvenient. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but you've, I mean, but you've experienced all of these things. Unfortunately, because of what you went through, I didn't have to do that, and I, I and I appreciate that. So how? When you once you graduated and all of the things that go along with that, how did you get into um, you were with Boeing, right? Well, yeah, that's kind of a long story. How I got well, well I'm sorry, retired from Boeing. Yes, oh. um, you started. So I, well, I started with Rockwell International. Okay. Um, my my degree well, and, and got the bachelor's in 1973. And folks now don't remember. But starting in 1971, the aerospace industry, especially, well, really all of engineering, especially aerospace, just went, went downhill. Um, so there were colleagues graduating in 1973 with me who weren't finding any jobs at all. Um, the University of Washington Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics had and still has a one-year master's program, no language requirement, no thesis requirement. I figured, well, heck, that's like another senior year. Well, it wasn't exactly like another senior year as grad school. But anyway, I did get through it in a year. And by 1974, when I had the master's going into the job market with a master's, so I looked more appealing. Um, by then, um, uh, I, I had 13 job offers without even trying. Wow, that's impressive. I, I, I knew it wasn't even worth trying in 1973, but there were several things happening. The space shuttle program was just ramping up in 1974. It had, the contracts, I think, were let in 72 or 73. Uh, Rockwell International got the contract for the space shuttle orbiter. 
Uh, I didn't want to work for Boeing, even though I was in Seattle and University of Washington, AA, aeronautics and astronautics is kind of like Boeing prep. Um, but I really didn't want to work for Boeing because I saw what Boeing did to my aerospace engineer neighbors. They transferred them and laid them off just willy nilly. So I, I just didn't want to be in that kind of environment. So I went to work for Rockwell International, had the privilege of working on space shuttle, um, loved working on space shuttle, magnificent program, uh, 30 years of career in space shuttle. Um, and uh, in 1996, the Boeing company bought our division. <laughs> so, so they got me anyway. <laughs> and by 2002, they transferred me from Southern California to Houston. So that happened. And in 2016, I, I was uh, responsible for, uh, well, let's see, I'm sorry, 2011, space shuttle ended. Uh, I was reassigned to Boeing commercial crew, um, working cargo integration, which is what I worked on shuttle. There is cargo on, on the commercial crew vehicles, a few hundred kilograms. Um, so th there didn't have to be much in the way of helpers in cargo integration because there wasn't a lot to do. And I'm a professional, I know how to do my stuff. Uh, so a lot of folks really didn't know what I was doing because I was just quietly getting it done. And when the schedule says you have it done, it was done, which means when the schedule slipped and it's a fixed price contract, the managers had nothing for me to do, which means because it was a fixed price contract, I'm a senior project engineer, I'm expensive. They laid me off in, in 2016. So the two things that were the big reasons I didn't want to work for Boeing after I started working for Boeing not any idea of mine, they happen. <laughs> I, I had intended to work another five years. Well, um, being that I might know you a little bit, seems to me as you actually have been doing a whole lot of work in these five years or, well, 12 years or six years since you since you mm -hmm. been going. So tell us a little bit about, well, actually, wait, can we back up just a second? You hold the patent on the um, cargo space cargo containers. Is that correct? Actually, it's 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 uh, three patents. Uh, they're Boeing patents, but uh, and I they're I'm I'm one of several people, uh, three or four named on on each of the patents. Uh, they're for different aspects of cargo containerization. So to tell you what that is and why it's important, although it's not been implemented anywhere, um, the 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 cargo industry. On, on earth and on ships and trucks and uh, even planes, although it's a different kind of container and, and rail cars, the cargo industry was completely revolutionized. Um, uh, Malcolm, what's his last name? Oh, I can't remember his last name. Anyway, um, a guy thought of the idea of, and I'm, I'm driving a truck to the port and everything needs to be unloaded out of the, the truck piece by piece and loaded onto the ship. Why don't I just drive the whole trailer, the truck onto the ship and leave it there? And that's how cargo containers started. And, and that, that now is how almost everything is shipped. There is bulk cargo and oil goes in tankers and that kind of thing. But, but when you look at most trains going by on the railroad tracks, they're loaded with containers. You look at ships and most of them are loaded with containers. You look at trucks on a free on the freeway. And a lot of those are not trailers. They're, containers on a trailer. Uh, so absolutely revolutionized the industry. And the, the reason for that is, is actually, there are lots of reasons, but the, the most simple one is you have standard interfaces, no matter what you're carrying, it gets handled the same way by a crane that picks it up and puts it somewhere else. Um, and the problem we have on space vehicles 
is that the interface interfaces between the launch vehicle and whatever it carries are unique. Uh, now, there's some standardization happening. Um, for instance, the tops of most um, expendable launch vehicles, or in the case of SpaceX, the, the pointy end vehicles that get reused, but same like this sticky kind of things. Um, there, there's a, a round clamp kind of arrangement, and your uh, that the back end of your payload or your satellite needs to match to that clamp. Depending on what vehicle you are, it may have different size. It may have uh, different um, uh, power interfaces and data interfaces. So literally, until relatively recently, every launch vehicle that was built was customized for exactly what it would be carrying. So if a satellite were delayed, its launch were delayed, and then that launch vehicle had to wait for that satellite to be ready to launch. If a launch vehicle was delayed, the satellite destined for that launch vehicle had to wait until the launch vehicle was ready to go. Uh, on space shuttle, the way that was handled is the entire cargo bay uh, was had we had we had standard interfaces, but they had to move. So every satellite that we carried in the space shuttle cargo bay had different locations of the latches that held in, they call them trunnions, it's basically a trunnion fits in a latch. There were different locations, different locations for the um, data interfaces and the power interfaces. So literally between, between flights of every space shuttle, the, the cargo bay was stripped out and everything reinstalled. The, the idea of cargo containerization is that the vehicle configuration always stays the same. You do your customization inside a container that, that the way I would explain it to our customers is, I don't care if you install your stuff with bubble gum. <laughs> I don't care because the interfaces to me, the launch vehicle are the same. So literally we could save thousands of hours of vehicle processing time if we had standard interfaces. Now we don't have a reusable vehicle that looks like space shuttle. Uh, so that the particular designs I was looking at aren't going to fly. At least the idea of standardization is getting around, but the, the kind of cargo bay we had on space shuttle, which was amazingly effective, um, we're, we're not flying that anymore. But yes, I have three patents for how we, uh, we could have standardized the interfaces with containerization on space shuttle in the cargo bay. And actually the idea developed for a proposal for a different launch vehicle entirely. And there were several launch vehicles that never flew. That's one of the challenges of being in this business is they're great ideas for vehicles that don't fly. And I, I don't want to want to disrespect our customer, but um, <clears throat> there's some pretty stupid decisions that NASA managers have made. We won't get into that here, but there's some vehicles that would be flying now uh, that would uh, be very useful for the space industry that aren't because somebody decided another way. But anyway, some of those would have had cargo containers. So it's um, when you think about containerization on ships and trains and, and trucks, uh, we were going to do that for spacecraft and uh, we really need to still do that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's great. I mean, it's good to know. And it's actually just really interesting information. I mean, but also wow, patents on how to do it. It's cool. It's nice that you have that. It's good. Well, so yeah, thank, you. thank you for asking about that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting stuff. I mean, you know, it's not something that's one really cool thing about living in this area and and talking to people and being friends with people who work at NASA is all kinds of weird little things. You just never were like, oh, oh, yeah, that would be an issue, wouldn't it? 
you know and and uh, yeah you just don't think about but but it's it's it is cool it's really neat so let's talk about your post-retirement career because you've been extremely busy yeah (laughs) so um in the 1980s, like 1983 was the idea that first came about, um, I, I, was, I co-founded with two other people. I co-founded an event for high school students called Space Settlement Design Competitions. And uh, I'm, I'm the only one of the three founders who's both alive and active with that. My, my husband passed away, as you know, Michelle, uh, in 2009, but we're carrying on for him. And then the, uh, the other co-founder is still interested, but not really engaged. And uh, that has grown into a global phenomenon with semifinals all around the world, literally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one of my volunteer activities that started in the 1980s. Let, let me let me let me back up just a second because there's a couple of terms that you use, and I know you NASA people love to throw out your terms. <laughs> okay, but you said cis lunar. What is cis lunar for the normal people of us out here? Yeah, so you know what lunar is. Uh, cislunar is basically the space encompassing the area around Earth out to the out to lunar orbit. So if we have uh, infrastructure, we talk about space infrastructure in cislunar space, that could be a, um, a spaceport in orbit around Earth, be a spaceport in orbit around the moon. It can be manufacturing facilities between the Earth and the moon. There are places called libration points where the gravitational pull of the earth and the moon are the same. There's, they're either stable orbits or um, orbits that are unstable, like a saddle, like you'd slip off if you don't station keep, but you can still stay there. Um, L1 is between the earth and the moon. L2 is on the other side of the moon from earth. L3 is on the other side of the earth from the moon. And L4 and L5 are about a sixth of the way around the moon's orbit around the earth. So there are five vibration points. And those have been seen since the 1970s as possibly, especially L4 and L5, possibly very interesting place to put settlements in space. So we have scenarios at L4, L5, L1, um, a bunch of places. Nice. So all of it depends. And I believe this for real as well. Uh, I, I, and I'm seeing the scenarios we wrote, the kinds of things we were writing 30 years ago are beginning to come to pass. We described space infrastructure. And now we're starting to talk about infrastructure, space infrastructure at conferences. It didn't used to talk about space infrastructure, and now we do. Um, we've talked in the design competition about consortiums of companies working together to build out space infrastructure. So you don't have people or companies duplicating each other's work. We're starting to hear that at conferences. So a lot of the things we were envisioning 20, 30 years ago are starting to happen for real. That's just a lot, a lot of fun. Oh yeah, it's very gratifying. So we constantly have to up the game like, oh, cool, good that we kids know about that because it's already happened. I need to write that out of the scenarios, make it more futuristic. <laughs> That's amazing. You do, I will say, it's truly an amazing competition. It really challenges these kids and everyone is exhausted when they leave, but man, they're so full. It was amazing. I do have one other thing. So your Mercury, is that inspired by our local weather from freezing to... <laughs> no, actually, I didn't come up with the idea of a settlement trundling around the planet. I think it came from uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars series. I think there was 
there were some plot twists that happened on the planet Mercury in Blue Mars uh, that were uh, described by Kim Stanley Robinson. So that's that's where the idea came from. So, oh, I could do that. <laughs> so uh, you were going to go on with your other. Yeah. I'll let you go ahead and finish. Thank you. Yeah, there are a lot of little things I do. I'm still involved with the University of Washington um, and uh, visit there as often as I can. Um, and, and there are a lot of other things I do. I'm, I'm involved with little chapters of uh, various engineering groups. If they remember, I'm here and they call me. At COVID times, so I'm not getting those, as many of those calls. But um, my other big volunteer activity is the National Space Society. Uh, I became a board member, was elected to the board of the National Space Society, I think around 2008. Uh, I became a member of the executive committee. I was secretary of the National Space Society starting in 2012. And about a year and a half ago, uh, I, uh, I was asked, would I be interested in being CEO? of? It's then called chair of the executive committee, but really it's CEO and now is called chief, um, ex uh, chief executive officer of the uh, National Space Society. And that the person who said, well, some of the leaders are thinking you might make a good CEO, that the person who asked that said, we don't think you'll accept, but we're asking anyway. And, and my, my answer was, whatever the leaders of NSS think is the best thing I can do for NSS, where their continuous secretary do something else or run the joint, um, I, I will do whatever other leaders think is the best thing I can do for the society. So. Um, I am now CEO of the National Space Society, and uh, fortunately, the top leadership, the, the president, the chief operating officer, um, we're, we're very compatible. We have the same vision. Uh, there are a number of officers in NSS who have been, uh, been around a, a long, long time, and they had a vision for what NSS was and could be in the 1970s and 1980s, and it's time for NSS to be bigger now. The, the things, so the National Space Society, for those of you who don't know, is the premier um, membership-led, as in everything is elected by the membership, or all leadership is elected by the membership. Uh, we're an advocacy group for uh, people living in space, and uh, literally, uh, we do uh, lobbying in Congress to um, to inspire uh Congressional, well, let's call them Congress critters, <laughs> to uh, uh, approve NASA budgets and 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 laws and legal frameworks that will will enable development of industry and commercialization in space. And these things are are getting closer and closer now. So the National Space Society is getting to be more important uh, because we we have had an influence. Actually, when the vote came up to approve uh, the International Space Station. That vote won by one vote, and we are reasonably certain that that one vote or a few votes that gave us that one vote advantage to approve ISS, that uh, it was National Space Society lobbying that helped make that happen. Um, and the NSS is actually a merger of two organizations that were founded in the 1970s. The L5 Society was founded by a guy named Gerard O'Neill, who was very famous in the 70s for proposing the idea of living in space. He uh, wrote a popular book called Colonies in Space. He ran, he ran two studies at Stanford University that were NASA funded. I think it was 75 and 76. Um, and the other society was founded by Werner von Braun, Dr. Werner von Braun, the, 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 um, the inspiration for Saturn and Apollo, founded the National Space Institute. And those two organizations merged in the 1980s to become the National Space Society. 
which does advocate for um, space settlements. And NSS for for the, its first few decades was mostly an advocate communicate community, just people, non-technical people who couldn't really make it happen, happen wishing it would happen. <laughs> and and now more of us engineers are <clears throat> infiltrating NSS, and um, and bringing some technical credibility into the organization. And um, we, we there's some of us are actively talking about we can be a little bit more technically activist than, than NSS has been in the past. So I, I mentioned some of our leaders who've been around for a long time. They, they really didn't have that bigger vision that some of us are having now for NSS to get more involved in the technical side. So if you want to join NSS.org, <laughs> you can join. And um, we offer some really cool member services. Um, not every Thursday, but um, a lot of Thursdays, um, not quite every other Thursday, we'll have guest speakers who will talk about uh, what's going on in the space industry. Uh, Lori Garver, who was a deputy NASA administrator and just came out with a book recently, uh, was the speaker uh, this past Thursday. Um, so we, we get some really interesting speakers. That's a member benefit. We have a uh, conference every year called the International Space Development Conference that is um, at, in, the, in the way that Aerospace Society conferences go, like American Institute of Aeronautics, and pardon me, my phone is uh, being uncooperative. Let's just shut that off. Um, sorry about that. We don't have those. Um, anyway, um, as technical conferences go, like American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, uh, it's, it's it's like $1,200 to attend a conference. Uh, National Space Society, it's just like, depending on whether you get the early reduced rates, I think it's like around $300. Um, and, and we offer a lot of the technical topics that are offered at, let's call them the big technical conferences. And we have more, NSS has more content that is more future looking. So do, do I chair a track at the conference? Yeah, that's another of the things I, I'm not just CEO, I'm also co-chair one of the, the track on space settlement at, at the uh, International Space Development Conference. <laughs> Well, I think there are a few other conferences I coach. Okay. As I say, you are, you are the perfect person to chair that one, though. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Steminist Podcast. Tune in next time, where we'll be hearing from more amazing women in STEM. Want to listen to more podcast episodes? Check out our podcast website at www.egr.uh.edu to listen and subscribe today.